Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope. This is where you get to hear how to feel happy, balanced, and worthwhile. How to make that lonely ache vanish and feel empowered, confident, and secure. I'm Lauren Abrams, and I get to help you feel that magic again since going through my own dark night of the soul by chatting with incredible leaders, healers, and change agents who give you their message of hope after overcoming challenges of their own. And today we're talking to writer, humorist, and anxiety buster, John Patrick Hatcher. Do you wonder about men and anxiety? Are they fraught with complexities the same way? You're about to find out because today I get to talk to John who openly discusses relationships, OCD, men and friendships, and coping mechanisms for when that anxiety hits and you don't even know what to do. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hope, John. Thank you, Lauren. Good to be here. Am I incredible? Yeah, yeah, definitely. (laughs) So you have an upcoming book? Anxiety Hacks for an Uncertain World, or it already came out, or is it a release? It was released like three weeks ago. Oh, congratulations. Yep, I can see it. Anxiety Hacks for an Uncertain World. Yes, that's the uh, the paperback version, and there's a hardcover version, which is a lot more expensive. (laughs) It's actually a textbook, as well as a uh, general trade book, and a clinician's kind of supplemental guide patients as well. And it's, uh, it's the first self-help humor book on on uh, mental health, especially for academia. It was extensively peer-reviewed, so it's not just you know stories of me train wrecking my life. Um, it's evidence-based clinical tactics. Each chapter is a trigger, essentially. So there's 22 chapters, and each, each chapter is like divorce, breakup, uh, pandemic, job loss, any of the big adverse events moving um, that sort of thing that you can think of. And then there's the second half of each chapter is those tactics to implement on the fly, which is the difference of this book than others. There's no workbooks, worksheets. You know, the last thing you want to do when you're in the perils of some anxiety triggering event is to have to do homework. So I've taken that out and made things very palatable for people. Yeah, to go, wait, wait, let me grab my book. Wait, what chapter was it? Yeah, it's a triage guide. It really is. And, you know, each chapter has, you could really transpose the tactics and techniques from any chapter to any adverse event, you know, but, or you can read it straight through. You don't have to say, oh, I was just bitten by a snake. You know, what do I do? What chapter is that? Um, you could just open it up to any tactics and, uh, you know, distress tolerance. Okay, I've got to calm down, you know, that sort of thing. You can either read it straight through and, and glean as many tactics as you want and use those when something, you know, adverse arises, or you can refer back to it. So I like anything solution-based, instead of hearing everything that's wrong with me, I want to know, okay, well, what do I do? (laughs) How do I get out of this? (laughs) I'm always curious about guys, like what happens with them? Is it any different or you don't know? And Yeah, it's different in that. I think, you know, like we'll, we'll take breakups and divorce, for example, because that's a, that's a biggie. And most of us go through that at least once in our lives. And um, women tend to deal with those on the front end. So by the time, you know, a woman or a man deals with the breakup or divorce, a woman is all already over it because she's not only did she see it coming, um, generally men ignore those red flags along the way. And then they're, you know, dumbfounded when it happens. But men tend to deny, distract while you're going out with your friends and having conversations about how not to repeat that mistake. And, you know, so we're on the back end dealing with it. And then we want that person back and that ship has sailed. Um, That's, that's typically the way it has gone down 
And interestingly, that's what started all of my my writing was I went through a breakup and I didn't know what to do with it. And um, I had just gone through like my 10th shoulder surgery. I had 13 orthopedic surgeries from sports. I was in a sling and I was trying to tie my shoe and I just got dumped and I just started crying on the linoleum. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't process all of the adversity that was going on and, or tie my shoes. And I'm like, okay, well, I could get Velcro shoes, but how do I fix my heart, you know, and, and move forward? And I started journaling. I started to see the humor, not immediately, you know, it took a while, but I started to see these humor patterns in all the dysfunction of not just a breakup. There's a pattern of humor that really streams through anxiety. And um, if you can recognize that and tap into it, it shifts your perspective and gives you the hope for a different outcome. And that's what I write about is to source that humor, pause for a moment. And, and I didn't invent the clinical efficacy of humor in mental health or physical health. Health. This goes way back to greater minds than mine. Uh, Norman Cousins, Viktor Frankl, for example, these folks who have lost everything and they've written about that tiny, tiny light at the end of, of humor and how to channel it and, and shift perspective towards hope. And that's what humor does is it stops it. It stops the woe. You know, it stops the boo voice long enough to where you could be like, hmm, maybe I can flip the script here a little bit and get something better out of this. So the breakup thing is what started it. I wrote that. I wrote um, an essay about it called Breaking Up Badly. And it was noticed by a movie producer in LA who wanted to do a movie and asked me for a script. And I'm like, a screenplay. And I was like, what? (laughs) Who are you? And I actually flew down to Hollywood, got my first agent and entertainment attorney who robbed me blind. And I wrote the book, but it wasn't picked up. But what was, um, what did catch the um, attention of the publisher was the voice, um, that kind of self-deprecating humor. And they wanted me to write a book for teens on anxiety. And I was like, well, I'm an anxious adult. I was an anxious teen. It's not a stretch. And so I wrote 101 Ways to Conquer Teen Anxiety. And that's really what started it all. And it's just kind of taken a life of its own. You know, they then wanted a second teen book, which comes out in July, and then this adult book, which just came out last month. So I, you know, it's, I still, I just want to write my, my magnum opus, but you know, as long as these other opportunities keep coming up, I'll keep writing them. Yeah, definitely. It's, it, it's interesting. Cause I, the comedians I know are like the most depressed people I know too. Yeah. And very broken. <laughs> you, if you ever listen to a yeah. bunch of comedians talking on any of these where they're just discussing having these open conversations with each other. They're very funny and they're very dark. <laughs> There's a lot to that. And if you Google, and I talk about this in the book, if you Google celebrities with mental illness or celebrities with anxiety, celebrities with um, depression, it's pretty much everybody that you've ever heard of. <laughs> and um, comedians, musicians, writers, artists, it's a double-edged sword because that creativity comes from the coping that um, we use to get through these other things. So, um, you know, would I trade all of the adversity and give up the writing? That's that's a big question. Nobody has to ask you. You know, luckily you're not being asked that question. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. At some point I would have, but now I'm like, I don't know, it's kind of working out. (laughs) Yeah, well, to me, journaling and meditation are, I was just asked, I've put together a uh, clarity and confidence scorecard actually. And I was asked, well, what are the two biggest or best tools? I, I don't know what the right adjective is, but 
I said, journaling, it's a no brainer. Journaling and meditation are hands down the best tools for both of those. I totally agree. My fear is that somebody will find my journals after I die. <laughs> no, I have a plan. <laughs> Are you kidding? I have a plan. My friend, like she knows, get all of my writings out. Bur yeah, well, burning is bad for the environment, but like nothing is to be found. <laughs> yeah, there's some scandalous stuff in there, I'm sure. Yours and mine. It's just like nobody should ever see that. That's that's the free flow. Like you, I need peace in mind. Uh, <laughs> that stuff should be gone. <laughs> yeah. I look back at some of mine and I'm like, man, that was a dark time. You know, where did I, Everyone did I goes through it. Like nobody goes through this life unscathed. I've talked to enough people um, just the last couple of years doing this. And even before that, it, it's amazing. Like the only way through is through. Yep. If there was a way to jump first, you know, go around it or anything, I'd have found it. <laughs> like that's it. So what are some tools that we can use to like deal with anxiety when it arises because you know sometimes i was taught if it's hysterical it's historical if it if i'm having some overreaction to a situation it's not the situation it's it's triggering me somehow and i don't need to know how why or in the moment i just like something's going on but how do i get through it at that time did that question make sense? Yeah, it's mastery over emotions. I mean, essentially, it's not, it's our response to things, which is why exposure response prevention, which is one of the methodologies I talk about, I strip all the acronyms out in the book. I don't even mention that. I, it might be mentioned, but I really just work on, okay, what do you do with this? And by way of example, if you're afraid of driving on the freeway, well, you get on the freeway in a car. And, um, you know, I've, you know, with OCD tendencies, for example, uh, avoidance is only going to exacerbate the problem. So it depends on your anxiety, but there's, um, you know, anxiety first and foremost is um, we need it. You know, it's how we, it's how we survived. It's why we're here today. Uh, it's how we pay the bills. Uh, it's, you know, really how I showed up on time to talk to you today. Um, we need it in a small amount, right? It keeps us alive. It's when it becomes chronic, you know, after it goes past a few months and it starts becoming debilitating and interfering with life, that is where the issue comes. And so that's the anxiety I talk about. And there's buckets of anxiety and, you know, there's generalized anxiety disorder. OCD used to be part of that, but now it's in its own category, according to the DSM-5. But you've got, you know, social phobias, you've got PTSD, which is really in its own category now. And so there's these different buckets and or categories, which I have in the book. And then you have the different kind of anxieties that might fall under those. And generalized anxiety is, is really the catch-all. And so depending on your anxiety and, and your fear, uh, there's different approaches to alleviating it. Just waking up anxious each day and you're adding caffeine to the mix, well, you know, that's kerosene on a fire. And you know, caffeine is a, is a quick one. Um, Alcohol is another one. Um, you can have a panic attack and panic disorder is one of the other categories, but you can have a panic attack just from alcohol. You know, if you drink enough alcohol, I know this firsthand, I've had one, I was hugging a parking meter downtown in my college town, having one of the worst panic attacks I've ever had, solely induced by alcohol. You know, I know better, but I like to 
you know, road test everything I talk about. Actually, during the writing of the book, I have an illustrator and a contributing author. Uh, my contributing author is Dr. Christopher Willard, who is a lecturer at Harvard as well. And my illustrator, Peter Brown, I mean, all of us were going through some crazy stuff at the, the writing of this book. Chris lost his mother to cancer. My mother was diagnosed with a stage four terminal breast cancer. You know, I'm in cancer remission. Peter lost his father. All three of us went through a big geographical move. I mean, we were just like, all right, is it us? <laughs> is it this trio of just doom? <laughs> Do we break up? Or is it just like this book's taking too long? We've been writing it for years, um, which was actually the case. If you give anyone enough time in life, you're going to have the good and the bad. And, you know, there's a saying that life's, uh, I say this, but life's unfair for all of us, which is what makes it fair for any of us. And, you know, there is no category of bad things happening in threes or any certain number. That's humans wanting to control things, right? And so you could have a million great things happen and then a million bad things, or you could have one and one. It's, there is no ratio. But a lot of these things that we had to implement as we were writing this book, you know, these tactics. And so the book is a testament to the things that we were going through at the time of writing. And, and we talk about a lot of those things. And we follow up with the tactics. And that's where Dr. Willard's stuff is um, really helpful is, you know, what do you do now if you're in the throes of job loss um, and maybe you are got a divorce on top of it? You know, how do you even function? And so I talk about radical acceptance and, and these distress tolerance skills and uh, four by four breathing. And you're big on the meditative breathing. Um, there's a, you know, I like alternate nostril breathing, um, which is really a cool technique. Um, I do straw breathing, you know, I'll try to drink through a, a coffee straw. Um, so depending on the situation and the severity of the anxiety in the moment, there are many different tactics. And I talk about you know, SSRIs and medication versus talk therapy. And, you know, I, I believe there's a time and place for, for medication. Absolutely. Um, talk therapy cannot be substituted. Um, right now we're having all this AI discussion and there's AI bots doing therapy, which is scary. There was a company, I won't name it, but it recently trialed their AI chat bots without telling the patients. Yeah, it was empathetic. It actually did really well. Um, the patients couldn't tell. But when they found out, they were pissed off and they didn't want to deal with it anymore or talk to the bot. I just tested uh, on new California laws, a couple of new employment laws, and it wrote a whole thing on independent contractors versus employees that went into effect a couple of years ago, completely messed up. Oh, like the gig laws and stuff? Yeah, and it was correct on the law, but it wasn't new. I'm like, no, that's not a new law. I know what new laws went into effect in this state for 2023. And I was like, oh, maybe it'll write a better blog post than me. Now, when I did it on some of the <laughs> topics that I use for the podcast, it, it wrote great blog posts. But then I tried it for my legal practice and it was completely off. Interesting. I thought I would be safe because I'm like, well, AI will never be able to demonstrate empathy. And, you know, but it can. Yeah. But we still want that human connection and we want the flaws. Absolutely. So that was actually, it was good because as you were talking, I was like, okay, so one of the big things right now is isolation. And, and you can feel like, oh, I have connection. I'm meeting you. I feel connected to you. It's not the same as being physically together. It's not. Yeah. And I'm as much a culprit of this now that I work from home. I'm like, no, nah, I've seen all these people. I've been online. My, you know, 
mailman. Yeah. And and it's not the same. And it's very hard to get people, people who are isolated, their care for isolation is more isolation. <laughs> it's really yeah, hard yeah. to get people out. And and then when it's time to actually be at a party, and it, I say party in quotes, use air quotes, to get them to go out. Now there's it's not a high, or maybe it is a high level of anxiety, but it's like, I don't want to go. Nobody will notice if I don't go. Your head starts talking. And and it can go either direction from there. You know, oh, nobody will notice. But it's so important to our mental health to show up. Yeah. First of all, it's important to have other people there. It's not even just about you. If everyone doesn't show, the person who's put all the work and time into whatever the thing is, and it's important to all the people there that are other people are there. And it's important to you and your mental health that you show up. I was taught. Plus there's snacks, right? Yeah, of Usually. course. There's food. Something other than what's in your pantry. I get it. You know, I've, I'm guilty of this as well. I work from home. And yesterday, I think, was my first time out because we've been under this torrential rain for weeks um, currently, as you know. And I was like, the sun came out and I knew I needed that vitamin D because it's real. I'm like, you get that kind of, you need sun, you need vitamin D. It actually boosts your immunity, it boosts your mood. I mean, it's clinical. But I had to try the pistachio latte at Starbucks, you know, and I, you know, the the first person I saw, the first human I interacted with was the barista, you know, and I was like, hey, how you doing? Oh my God, it's so good to see you. You know, that guy probably thought I was crazy, but he didn't know that, you know, here he had seen, you know, 500 people already. And he was the first human that I had seen all day. And so I talk a lot about not just loneliness, but male loneliness, because it's, it's an epidemic in and of itself. Yes. Um, let alone, you know, I talk about anxiety, which is male anxiety, which is different than other genders um, and how we handle it is different. And it is hard. Um, men tend to silo uh, quite a bit. We tend to rely on our partners for all of our social interaction more. And if you've seen the Saturday Night Live skit, Man Park, it is, it just nails it. It's fantastic. I recommend anybody to Google Man Park SNL. I talk a lot about this, but I'm guilty of it myself, I will make excuses why I can't meet with somebody. You know, I've had perfect opportunities to hang out with a guy and then I don't. For men, there's also the vulnerability of our egos and being perceived a certain way. Like, how do you ask another man out? You know, and it's really, it becomes a very awkward dance because we don't want to be misread and uh, we're idiots. There's all of these different tactics for every one of these situations. And I think I've definitely addressed everything we've talked about in the book, but I, I don't want to give away all the tactics because then nobody will buy my book. I do want to stress that they are um, interchangeable tactics for any anxiety that you're suffering. And, you know, for for AA, um, Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a saying that, you know, you're triggered to drink if you experience any of the HALT symptoms. So hungry, angry, lonely, tired. It's similar with anxiety. So if you isolate, that's a trigger you know, the alcohol, the caffeine, if you're not working out, exercising. Exercise is getting more and more uh, publicity now as a um, because it, it generates a protein called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor. Um, it's a protein that literally causes a change in the brain. And um, don't ask me the, the clinical speak on it, but it boosts mood and lifts depression. And it's a great anti-anxiety tactic. So uh, it actually beats medication. So, you know, these are easy to do. Take a walk. Looking at trees will shift and alleviate anxiety. And I mean, just out your window, 
trees are awesome. Um, all of ours are falling down right now with the floods and mudslides, but we're, we have some trees left. So I'm looking at them. Yeah, no, there definitely are. And, um, and talking to people, you, uh, there's a whole, I did a episode a few weeks ago on, uh, with Maria Franco, she's a professor at university of Maryland who wrote a book on, it's all about, um, friendships as adults and how difficult it is and how different and, I stalked her a little bit to get her to talk and she's because she's so good and it's just it's so interesting and in how we have to put ourselves out there and yeah. it takes work. It just yeah. does. So there's um, that meme like adult friendships is two people saying um, we should get together um, until you die and never actually meeting up. And it's it's true. You know, you run into somebody. It's like, oh, we should totally get together. And then you just keep saying that every four or five years. And then you go back to your day-to-day. -day. I mean, we're under so many pressures right now, let alone pre-pandemic. Um, I say pre, it seems like we're, it's never ending. Um, but, you know, now with, you know, parents had to homeschool for so long and, um, you know, with work and inflation and, you know, I don't need to share all the stressors to, with you, but friendships take, the, take a back seat to all of that. And unfortunately, at the toll of our mental health and physical health, because they're intertwined. You know, there's a lot of studies showing that, um, you know, what anxiety and depression long-term can lead to um, in terms of physical ailments. Yeah, definitely. But we have to feel our feelings because if we don't feel them, that comes out as some form of trauma in our bodies and systems too. So it's like, yeah. yeah. You have great nuggets. You have, you have to nuggets. do all of it. And I've, I've prioritized it walking with friends and because of all the torrential rains, that's been, those are like my non-negotiable. Oh, you kayak down the street with friends. And now it's like, it's been weeks since I've gone and seen anybody or walked with a yeah. friend. I know we need it. I can't, you know, I can't complain about the rain because we've been in a drought, whatever. Anyway, um, and the other thing I wanted to say is one of my first interviews on this podcast was Evan Mark Katz. He's a coach for relationships and everything else. And he was telling women, give the guys a break. These single men, they don't talk to anyone. They're isolated. So <laughs> the fact they maybe want to marry you on the second date, they've been isolated. Where they don't have girlfriends. And it's only because I asked him, I go, so how how is it with your guys, your crew? And he goes, I don't have a crew. I talked to my wife. She has a back group, a book group for that. I have, I have no one. Like, so then he went, and then he went on a whole diatribe about that. Give guys a break. And it was his... It got a little bit dark and everything. I was like, whoa. Yeah, we have to give ourselves a break. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it is because I'm guilty of it too. And it's like, I'll literally have people ask me to go do things. And I'm like, how do I get out of this? Or I'll commit <laughs> and knowing that I'm going to bail you know, before the actual <laughs> event. Um, yeah, I don't know. And it gets, and then I complain that I'm lonely. That's not a gender thing, that's an individual. Thing. Some people are like, yeah, let's go. Well, at first it was forced upon us, right? And in, in, in you know, social distancing, like we had to do it. And we're like, no. And then I think now we're like, eh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so true. I mean, I just like texting. I hate talking on the phone, you know, unless I'm driving. But um, yeah. yeah, I have to force myself out. Just as you said, I, I have to do it myself. And, and, Having being a writer is a is a isolative career and it lends to isolation. And so, you know, it's all the more excuse for me. And I always say, I don't need 
real friends. I have readers, you know, uh, they're friends by proxy. They're reading my stuff. So it's my, it's my tribe, but that's not, that's not good for me either. So I am making a conscious effort. One of the things I talked about, the easiest way to make new friends is to reconnect with old friends. And that's one of the things that I not only preach, but I'm practicing myself. And I've literally reached out to a few friends from decades ago that I lost touch with over, you know, trivialities. And it's been great, you know, talking with them and, and being supportive of one of them. Um, I hadn't talked to him. He was my best friend for 20 years. And we just had a fall. I didn't like the woman he married, <laughs> to be honest. I, you know, she it was his second marriage. So I, I just was like, I don't know. I'm just going to let this friendship fall by the wayside. But then I really missed him. And I, I went on uh, Facebook and saw that he lost his son um, suddenly, um, recently, a few months ago. And I'm like, holy Slito, I wasn't, and I could watch the, the, the funeral, you know, video. And I, I watched it and I, I mean, I grew up with this kid and, uh, watched his son grow up and I, it was devastating. And I reached out to him and was like, I'm so sorry I wasn't there and let's get together. And, you know, so, you know, there's pivotal moments that I, and regret that I have in missing some, some of these things. And, you know, there's so many cliches, like we don't know if we have tomorrow or, you know, tomorrow's not promised and today's a gift. That's why it's called the present. I mean, I hate these things, right? But I mean, it's so true. I mean, do you know, you've been through a lot. I was diagnosed with cancer on my birthday, a smoker's cancer. I've been an athlete my whole life. My mom as well, I'm adopted, so it's not genetic. So there's been a lot, you know, I've had all these surgeries from sports. I don't know why we just live as if we're all going to, you know, like we're all promised a hundred years or even 80. I know more than a lot of people that you could pee blood on your birthday, you know, not to get graphic, but that's, you know, what, what happened and that's eye-opening and you think, oh, I'm going to live differently after this, you know, <laughs> and, and then, you know, you go through chemo and surgery and you go through all this, you get into remission and then you just go right back to, you know, oh, I got a hundred more years. I actually have to remind myself because I think perspective is a beautiful thing and, you know, having perspective, we don't all get it. Um, but when you have it, you got to cherish that and say, look, I've gotten this. I've seen the other side. I know how things can get. I've got to live completely differently. But I think when you get away, when you get some distance from the perspective, from that perspective driving event, you kind of settle back. And that's just human nature that we settle back into our norm and our old patterns. And so, yeah, I, I share that because I'm guilty of it as anybody else is. And, um, you know, I, I wish I wasn't, but it is the truth. That's where gratitude lists come in handy. Doing a gratitude list. Yeah, is, uh, three a day, that's what I yeah. say. Yeah, Three gratitudes a day at the end of the day. It could be a sunset. It could be somebody greeting you or holding the door open for you. Yeah, no matter how small. Yeah, yeah, um, definitely. So what's the hardest challenge you've ever gone through? How'd you get through it? Oh, that's a great question. You blindsided me, Lauren. I'd say the hardest has been my own anxiety and depression. Um, because it's been lifelong and it's, it's not, um, you know, probably started at 13. I was a cutter and uh, I started cutting. I didn't know what was wrong with me. I had all these thoughts that didn't make sense, suicidal ideations. I just wasn't wired like other people. And I knew that. And, uh, I was a little league pitcher at the time I remember. And I was having what was diagnosed as asthma because anxiety wasn't a thing yet. You know, wasn't cool yet. I was having anxiety attacks on the pitcher's mound, you know, and no one knew that they thought, you know, here's an inhaler. It's like, well, that actually makes it worse. It's, it's got a in it, you know? So it's just spiking my anxiety. 
And so I had all these worries and I, I was like a existentialist at the time, you know, I remember I was like always laying in bed thinking, what if we were never born? What makes our soul our soul? Why am I not a rabbit? And, you know, all of these crazy things that I would think about and, and, and no kid should be thinking about these things. I should be playing with my GI Joe. And, but I had to learn through, you know, fortunately my parents kind of recognized, okay, she's got a lot of cuts on him. There's something going on. And I would lie and say it was from our cat. You know, it was clearly not the pattern of a, of a claw. And that's a true story. I, I did tell them that. And so, you know, I ended up in therapy. I ended up on medication and, but it's been, it's been a lifelong process. And that's been the hardest thing I've, I've ever had to really deal with. And that's my hope. And, you know, no matter what you're going through, there are people, you know, and I don't compare my woes to your woes. Um, it doesn't matter what you are going through or what I'm going through. It's what you're experiencing, what you know, and what feels terrible to you. And that's, that's yours. And you own that. It doesn't matter if I'm experiencing something worse or even not as bad. You're carrying what you have. And that is what you have to contend with. And you have to play those cards. And so, you know, I, really wasn't successful until I started accepting that and being okay with it and not trying to hide that I'm a guy and I'm depressed. And um, people just didn't know what was wrong with me. I was flaky or I was moody or I was a jerk, um, but that wasn't really it. I was depressed. I was anxious. I had these other things and I would label it anything other than a mental disorder. And, you know, um, growing up, that was a real, that was way more stigmatized than it is now. Well, if you don't have anxiety, you're not living. And if you don't have chronic anxiety, you're not like living hard. I just you know, tried to get right the second wait. Every kid doesn't think what would happen if I wasn't born or what? Like, <laughs> I'm not kidding you. Like I'm like, wait, everyone does every kid doesn't think that? Like I I don't <laughs> Yeah, I had some deep thoughts, I tell you. Um so you know, just I had to not only accept and become vulnerable as a man, I had to, and, and that's how this started is, you know, years and years ago, I started writing out those vulnerabilities and the humor in it. And, and then I noticed that other guys would open their kimono and be like, Hey, psst, look, I got it too. You know? And it's like, yeah, you do. And we all do. It's okay. Come out of the woods, you know, join me in this kumbaya. And it's, it is, it's pervasive. You know, any guy that tells you he doesn't get depressed or, you know, you'll see guys doing other things like over athleticism or, you know, having 13 surgeries or drinking or doing drugs or doing a lot of cannabis, which by the way, isn't the end all for, you know, mental disorders. I did a lot of cannabis to try to, to deal with anxiety and it actually made it way worse as well as the depression. So, um, you know, there's been a lot of trial and error in my life, but the one thing that really saved me was, was writing, was channeling it all into an energy and force for good. And that's what I've done through the writing, through the books, because I was, I noticed that other guys could relate to it. So maybe other people I don't know could relate to it. And then I started writing stuff and I couldn't believe the emails and the chatter I was getting from other, not just men, um, but women, girls. I, you know, I wrote for the first magazine article I did was for a teen girl magazine. And, you know, I was like, holy Toledo, we're all in this, right? We're all in this together. Let's be who we are and let's be flawed and let's be vulnerable. And that's what people relate to. Absolutely. I haven't thought of a nice way to do this, but like, just be vulnerable, be yourself, be authentic, tell others what's going on because nobody's paying that much attention. Nobody. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, nobody. I was like, Oh, 
when I started, like when I started this and I would tell my story in the first episode, I did a perfunctory kind of like nothing. And I knew it was that. And I was like, ah. and I just let it rip, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and nobody cares. Nobody cares. Yeah. If they maybe blink for a second and then move on, but nobody's paying attention. And that's what I learned. So then I'm like, okay, no. And that's what I want to tell people is like, nobody cares. And I don't mean that in a mean way nobody's paying attention if they do it's for a blink and then they're paying attention to themselves again yeah they're just yeah. like thinking about themselves so you could talk about whatever you want because it's important to and everybody's got their own stuff and and so you know in in closing related to what you just asked is i had to then lastly source my why and my why was you know i'm going to take all of this crap and I can turn it into something positive. You know, it's the, I really just took the, in every cloud, there's a silver lining crap. And I, I turned it into my own mantra, which was, I'm going to laugh at my, my adversity and I'm going to package it for other people so they can do it. And um, no matter what they're going through. And so, you know, Anxiety Hacks for an Uncertain World is actually a book series. I have 22 more chapters for the next book, and there's probably 22 after that. And um, if you turn on the news on any given day, you're going to get more you know, because every day it seems to be something else that we're supposed to worry about. You know, as you know, in, in California, it's now gas stoves. You know, oh, we're dying from benzene from gas stoves. I mean, it's always something if you turn on the news. Or, you know, if, if you don't watch less uh, news. I mean, I yeah, hey, I, I talk about that, too. Limit your media exposure. That was that was one of my lessons from 2022. Like, and I I got I like cringe to actually say it out loud that I it's me who reads an actual physical paper every day and I mean I have to for my law practice have consume a certain amount but I watch very little news anymore. Bravo! No, that's huge. Yeah, it, it definitely. It that's is. one of the quickest way to boost your mood. Take a media sabbatical. And if you have to limit, if you're finding that you're vulnerable to, you know, on social media and things are, because I, I certainly am. If I look at, I look at, I can't tell you every day if I look at social media, I look at something that pisses me off and I just, I'm like, why am I reading this? Yeah. It's also a time suck. Yeah, it certainly is. So take a sabbatical, go analog. You know, we don't need to be in the digital age all hour of every day. Go analog, go offline. Offline is peace of mind, I tell people. And so, you know, these are all things I discuss in, in the book and, and try to share and impart with people and find your why. And if that means you're the best fireman out there, you're the best lawyer out there, uh, you're the best mom or dad or aunt or uncle or artist, sculptor, et cetera, channel that. We need each other's talents. We need each other's outputs. Um, and that's what makes us a cohesive society. And that's, that's what's going to sustain yeah, us. Yeah, definitely. Oh, that's great. Do you have a message of hope you want to give? Well, that's it essentially is to, uh, is to source your why. And that takes people some time, you know, for each of us, it's different and find your voice first and, and, and don't squelch it and, you know, be, be loud and proud, um, embrace who you are. Uh, you don't need anybody's validation. If, if you think you're broken, I guarantee you, you are not. It's your imperfections and flaws that make us who we are. And those are the, actually the things we should celebrate and, and use those to, to make your impact on the world in whatever way that is. Yeah, definitely. We each have our own unique handprint. Nobody can do what you could do the way you could do it. Well said. Thank you, Lauren. Yeah. I love your message of hope. Oh, thank you. Great. Is there anything else that I should have asked you or that you want to say and it will be done and be like, Lauren didn't ask me this. And we will have links to everything of yours and, of course, your books and 
where to find you? No, and- you know, I'm located in Northern California and um, I, you can reach me if you, if anybody wants to reach me, you can reach me via my website, which is stateofanxiety.com, just like it sounds. And you can download a free chapter from the book at anxietyhacks.co, C-O. And um, my next book release will be a follow-up to the teen book, which is called the Teen Anxiety Guidebook, which will be out 4th of July of 2023. That that is it. Yeah. Okay. And and it, every, all of this will be listed with the episode and everything else. Thank you so much for being a guest today on 52 Weeks of Hope. It was my honor. Thank you, Lauren. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode and take with you John's messages of vulnerability, hope, and gratitude such great messages to take into your week ahead. Be sure to tune in next week for another empowering episode all about how to live abundantly, authentically, and how to have fun. It's a really great episode. It's really upbeat. That's next week. You will love that one. Also, be sure to sign up for the free Confidence and Clarity Boost Sessions. If you're struggling, this might be for you. It'll help you align with your path. If it's for those who feel like life's passing them by, maybe your inner critic is going nonstop, you're feeling burnt out and jealous of those doing what you wish you were doing yourself, you can just go to the website and sign up. They're just 15, 20 minute confidence and clarity boost sessions. If you're enjoying the podcast, share the love and tell two of your friends. I'm Lauren Abrams. Thanks for listening. 